Well, we are in Nahum, uh, which is uh, a book that we don't often go to. It's another minor prophet, and so uh, I'd encourage you, look in your index, find it. We're going to be in the first uh, seven verses. But I want to begin with a question, kind of a very big picture question, which is fitting because this first section of Nahum is very big picture. Uh, The question is this, who is God? This is a question uh, that is probably one of the most important questions any human being can ask and answer because uh, the answer to this question will very much determine how we live our lives, how we see the world. Uh, Even if your answer to this question is that there is no God, that will determine how you see your life because if there is no God, then, then there is no ultimate meaning or purpose you are left to kind of figure out life for yourself. Uh, If though you are a a believer, but you believe that God is uh, powerful and yet distant, kind of a God who is far removed from the world that he made, then you probably won't expect very much help from God. That'll be the way in which you see yourself in relationship to him. If you believe that God is a demanding God, kind of a cruel taskmaster, then you will live your life kind of always feeling burdened, like you aren't able to measure up. So the answer to this question is very, very important for every human being. Now, the the biblical answer, the Christian answer tends to be and is truly that God is love. Who is God? What is he like? He's a loving God. He's a gracious God. He's a God of peace and hope. That's why Christians tend to want to tell other people about God. Because we want for everyone to experience peace and hope and joy and all of these things are found ultimately in him. That's why we share the message. That's why we share the the gospel. The problem, though, the challenge, though, is that while all of these things are very clearly attributes of God, there are some other characteristics of God, ones that we also find in the Bible that seem to go against this idea that God is love. For example, uh, jealousy, anger, uh, wrath of God. These are things that we we find are true about God. We find them in the Bible, and yet it's difficult to see how those two things come together. You hear people sometimes say, uh, you know, I like the God of the New Testament. He seems really nice. He's really gracious and loving. He's excellent. But the God of the Old Testament, I don't don't know what to do with him because he's always angry. And and so for many people, they just say, "I, I don't want anything to do with him at all. Because if I can't understand how those two things fit together, then the that I can't really trust either the Bible or him. Many people have left the church because of this wrestle. Uh, Famously, Oprah Winfrey uh, left kind of the the church because of this. I'm going to read to you uh, some of the words. She tells this story. She says, I took God out of the box because I grew up in the Baptist church and there were rules and belief systems and doctrine. I happened to be sitting in church in my late 20s and this great minister was preaching about how great God was and how omniscient and omnipresent and God is everything. And then he said, the Lord thy God is a jealous God. And I was caught up in the rapture of the moment until he said the word jealous. And something struck me. I was thinking, God is all. God is omnipresent. God is in all. And God is also jealous. God is jealous of me. Something about that didn't feel right in my spirit because I believe that God is love and that God is in all things. So that's when the search for something more than doctrine started to stir within me. And you see, for her, there was a perceived contradiction, definitely a tension between the love of God and this idea that God is jealous. And so her reaction was to go elsewhere, to say, I, I, can't, I can't believe in this fully. I need to go and find some other source of truth to try to reconcile God's character. 
But see, the reality is that God's word and God's character are not inconsistent. And as we look to this passage of Nahum, what we're going to find is those two qualities of God, both the anger and jealousy and the love of God, are both spoken of and are shown to be harmonious. In fact, what we see as we look carefully at the Bible and think more deeply about the nature of jealousy, the nature of anger, is that God's anger and jealousy are not opposed to love, that they're a function of it. And God's severe judgment is not contrary to God's goodness, it's a testimony to it. So this is our topic for today, a fairly weighty topic. I know it's bright and sunny outside, but these are, these are some weighty truths, but ones that are really important that we wrestle with. If we are to have a good answer, a, a complete answer to the question of who is God. And so what we're going to do is read through uh, just the first seven verses of Nahum, and then we're going to really uh, seek to answer that main question of how we reconcile these differing qualities of God. So uh, I invite you to listen along or read with me. Uh, we're going to have the verses on the screen as we work through it, but for now we'll just read through uh, Nahum 1, 1 to 7. God's word begins this way. An oracle concerning Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum of Alkosh. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The, the bloom of Lebanon withers. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt. The earth heaves before him. The world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So we're going to stop there. I know kind of partway through that first section, but, but really here what we get is a, a big picture view of who God is. Um, if you know uh, where we've been in our series, you know that we've been in Jonah. Jonah is a prophet uh, speaking directly to the people of Nineveh. Now with Nahum, you see there at the beginning, it says an oracle concerning Nineveh. So in this case, uh, this is uh, Nahum, who's a prophet of God, not speaking to the Ninevites, but speaking to God's people about them. And here we have really a spotlight, Sean, on these big qualities of God. It's, it's kind of a preamble. It's as if Nahum is saying, look, let's just remember who God is, and then we'll see how he's going to respond to the Ninevites, because the Ninevites are a wicked people. We've seen God already spare them once, but now we're 60 years later and they have returned to their evil and sinful ways. And so the question that we're going to ask and answer as we think about these big picture qualities of God uh, is this. If God is love, then why is he so jealous and angry? I think this is a question that if we haven't wrestled with it ourselves is one that people often ask. If, if God is love, you're telling me that God is love, why, is, why this passage? How do we understand this? And let's be clear, uh, look again at verse 2. Uh, it's, it's, um, they're not, um, God isn't soft-pedaling, you know what I'm saying? He, he isn't saying, well, I'm kind of jealous at some point and I get a little bit angry sometimes. Look, look at the words. The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. What I want to do is look first at the jealousy of God and then the anger of God. And see how it is that those actually are functions of his, of his love. So let's begin with jealousy. 
Uh, we need to note that Oprah's pastor was not misquoting the Bible. We see here very clearly that God calls himself, speaks of himself in, in jealousy. And that immediately probably has some sort of reaction in us. Because by and large, jealousy is not a positive thing. When we hear the word jealous, or someone's described as jealous, it's not usually a compliment. Usually it's saying something negative about their character. Very often it has to do with uh, some, some guy, right? A boyfriend who's jealous of his girlfriend. He sees her talking to you know, someone from work and he gets all bent out of shape, right? He overreacts. He goes over there. All of a sudden it's the 1950s, right? And everybody's getting in. He's ready to have a fist fight. They want to have a drag race. He wants to prove himself. She's my girl. You don't talk to my girl without talking to me first. And we think, really? Really that... You're going to get that upset? I love her. She's mine. No one else can talk to her. I, that doesn't seem like love. It seems like controlling and, and possessive. It's, it's masquerading. It's selfishness masquerading as love. We can say to the guy, look, you don't really love her. If you loved her, you would be understanding. You would be gracious. You would actually be loving. And so that's why when we hear God say of himself that I'm jealous, we think, I, I don't know how that works. We should note that this is not the only time that God calls himself jealous. In fact, there's a number of times throughout the Old Testament. In fact, each time that God uh, gives the Ten Commandments, he gives them, gives them twice, uh, when it comes to him saying that there should be, you should have no other idol or no, other, no carved image, uh, he says this about himself, that he's jealous. Look at Exodus 34, 14. He says, for you, so he's speaking to the, the people of God, for you shall worship no other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. Now notice there, he, he actually says his name is jealous. He's saying it's at the core of who he is. And so we really have to wonder, like, did Oprah have a point? How, how can we understand God to be gracious and loving, but also he says his very name is jealous? Well, we don't need to abandon scripture. What we need to recognize is that there are, there are times when in fact jealousy can be a function of genuine selfless love. And, and just think with me for a minute here. I think the main reason that we see jealousy as a negative thing is because most of the time it's being expressed by selfish and sinful people. Right? People like you and me. People that tend to see others as a means to an end. Uh, we, we, don't, we don't love people for themselves very often. We usually love them for us. We, we tend to use people and t instead of really loving them. And so when we're jealous, it's expressing our desire to own or possess people. It's a function of our selfishness. But there are actually some times when jealousy can be an expression of love. The best example is, is that of marriage. In marriage, jealousy is fitting. In marriage, jealousy is right. For example, probably no one would fault a husband for feeling jealous and upset if his wife cheated on him. And no one, would, no one would be puzzled by a wife who was filled with jealousy after discovering that her husband had sent flowers to another woman on Valentine's Day. That's not a selfish feeling. That's not a wrong feeling. It's an expression of his love because their nat the nature of their relationship is exclusive. They've had a day where there was a, he was in a suit, she was in a dress. They made a covenant before God and before other people saying, look, I'm going to be devoted to you and you alone. You are who I love. You're going to love me. That's how this marriage is going to work. That's a good thing for us. 
It's a good thing for us to be devoted to each other and each other alone. And there naturally wells up in us a sense of anger, a sense of hurt and frustration when one or the other goes astray. This is the nature of God's love towards us. In fact, um, the, the, our relationship with the Lord, God and his people, is described throughout the Bible almost like a marriage relationship where, where there is a sense of, there is a covenant and a sense of devotion. I want to show you Exodus 34 again, but this time uh, I want you to see the context of the verses on either side and see the language that God has for his people. So here is verse 13. He's speaking to God's people about the other nations, the ones that don't worship him. And he says this, you shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim. Those are all idols. God is saying, you should go and you should get rid of all the idols that are near you. Why? Verse 14, for you shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. He's saying, I want you to get rid of those things because the nature of our relationship is that you worship me and me alone. That's what's best for you. Look at verse 15, lest, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice. So what he's saying is, I'm concerned that if you engage in you know, relationship with these other people who worship false gods, that you are going to be led astray. And notice that the, the harsh language there, he speaks of it as whoring after other gods, being unfaithful. And that's because it's an accurate description of their heart. That instead of having a love that is for God and God alone, they are unfaithful in their worship. Now here's the difference. The difference between our selfish jealousy and the jealousy of God is that our selfish jealousy is about us. It's about us controlling the people around us. But for God, it's because he wants to bless us. He knows that if we are to worship other idols, that we will ultimately be unsatisfied. We will be let down. We will be on our own in our sin. We'll have no hope. And so he says, no, my love for you is that you will, you will love me and me alone. That we will be exclusive in our relationship because I want the best for you. And so he is going to get upset. He rightly gets upset as a wife or a husband should rightly get upset if their spouse goes astray. It's not right. It's not right for the one who's betrayed. It's not even right for the person who's going astray. They may feel right, but it's not good for them. And so God's jealousy is a function of his love. There's a song, uh, a Christian song that I think expresses this really beautifully. Uh, it's a song that I thought was uh, by David Crowder, but apparently he just covered it. So someone told me after the first uh, gathering that it's actually John Mark McMillan uh, who wrote this song. So the song is called How He Loves. And it's about how God loves his people. And there's this one verse which says this. He, that's God, he is jealous for me. Loves like a hurricane. I am a tree. Bending beneath the weight of his wind and mercy. And I think there we see the, the connection. That we get this image of being enveloped by this overwhelming, intentional, furious love of God that demands fidelity and devotion. Not because he's being selfish, but because he really loves us because he wants the best for us and he wants to lead us into a continual blessing in him. And so that means when we, when we look astray, when our heart is tempted elsewhere, he, he says, no, no, come back to me. It's the very best thing for you and for my glory. So that's jealousy. That is how we can come to see that in God saying he's a jealous God, he's really saying, I really, I love you. 
But what about anger? I mean, anger is something that is more clearly uh, a contrary to love, right? We look back to verse two, though. It says, the Lord is avenging. The Lord is wrathful. That, that just means very angry. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries. I mean, jealousy we might understand, but a God of wrath, how, how can we reconcile that with this idea that God is love? Well, again, it's because I think the reason we have a challenge with it is because we usually experience anger from sinful people, or we in our own sin express anger. I mean, just think for a moment uh, in, your, in your mind's eye of the last week of your life. Has there been a time when you've been somewhat uh, b- um, bitter, irritated, annoyed? Have you spoken too harshly? Have you raised your voice? Have you been angry? It hasn't happened for me. No, it has. Uh, in fact, in our household, uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, but there's been a lot of snow lately. And so that means that uh, the, the Glezos household, we have not uh, gone to school very much. We haven't played soccer. We've just been in our house all together. Uh, and so what that has meant is that there's been some times of frustration, uh, uh, for me especially. Uh, and I've had to go and apologize to some of my boys and say, I, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have acted that way. I got frustrated. And as I think back to those times when I lost my temper, the interesting thing is, uh, in the moment, I felt justified, right? Because they were, they were doing something they shouldn't, clearly. But as I look back, I see that my reaction was an overreaction. What was really going on is that there was some selfishness within me. Uh, most often, it was because I had something that I wanted to do, some sort of, in my head, like a, a, a list, a to-do list for the day. And the people that I love and love dearly were getting between me and what I wanted to do. And I found that very frustrating. And I wanted them to stop doing that. And so I got angry. See, that anger, though, was not love for them. It was, it was, not, it was not gracious. It was not for their good. It was all about me. And that tends to be what our anger usually is. That it's a selfish thing. And so because of that, we have real difficulty trying to see uh, someone who is full of love, complete love, as God says he is, but then also full of anger. How does that work? Well, it helps if we recognize the fact that there, there are some times when anger is, is a result of love. And, and it is one example that came to my attention. I was reading uh, the news coverage of the, uh, the Humboldt Broncos, you know, the, the court case, the truck driver uh, who, who ran the stop sign and, and crashed into the bus. He thankfully has pled guilty, and so there's not going to be a trial. They're not going to have to go through all of that. But in the uh, reporting, the, the, the news person went to the memorial you know, beside the road where they have the crosses and hockey sticks, and uh, one of the fathers was there of one of the boys who had survived. His name was Miles uh, Shemlansky, and so they were asking him just how he's processing everything. And, and notice what he said. Uh, He said, my son and his 12 other survivors, they've got a long road ahead of them. When my son says he will forgive him, that's the truck driver, uh, the father said, I will think about it. Until then, I can't forgive him because it shouldn't have happened. We're not quite ready. We use other words than forgive for now. And I think we understand that. What he's saying is, I'm not ready to forgive because I'm still angry. There's still something inside me that that can't be just at peace with this. Why? Because it it shouldn't have happened. He did something wrong. And in doing something wrong, he hurt someone I love and he he killed others that I know. The father's saying, I'm still angry at this man. And we would all say, yes, we get that. We understand that. 
See, any time that you truly love someone, you are opening the door to anger and to, to feelings of wrath and even vengeance when someone tries to hurt them. I mean, just think of any, just imagine that someone you love is being hurt by someone else. Would you not intuitively respond with anger, with feelings of wrath? Yes, you would. I was watching, a, I remember a movie from a number of years ago, and uh, it's a movie, a really heavy movie, but there's a, in it, there's a teenage girl who's murdered. She's killed and she's left in this, in this ditch. And um, the, the, in the beginning scenes of the movie, the police there, they find her and they're, they're doing their crime scene investigation. Uh, but her father, it's a sort of a small community, her father finds out that something's going on. He hears that something might have happened to his daughter. And so he comes onto the scene. And you have to understand, this, this man, the character, he's not a good guy. He, he's, a, he's a mobster. He's a a criminal, and the police know who he is, but they also know that he's the father. And so he comes, and he realizes that, that it, he thinks his daughter is there, and so he wants to get into the crime scene. Of course, they can't let him do that. And so there's this police wall, and he, you can see he's just, he's played by Sean Penn. And if you know Sean Penn, he's an intense actor. And he is just, in his eyes, he is just furious. And so he comes, and he just crashes into the, the police line. And he's trying to get through and he's fighting his way through and they're holding him back and he makes eye contact with the detective who he knows and he starts screaming. He says, is my daughter in there? Is, is my daughter in there? And the police are holding him back and he's punching and fighting and they're, they're holding him and look, they're not arresting him. He, he's not a good guy. He does bad things, but in that moment, it, it's not sin. Do you hear what I'm saying? He's angry and furious. He wants to take on the world. Why? Because he, he knows the answer to his question. His daughter is in there. She's gone. And, and, he, and he's seething with wrath. And we would say, yes. Yes, of course he is. Because someone he loves has been taken away. That's a right response. That's a right feeling. Think about it the other way. Have you ever heard about someone who's been mistreated? Or someone who's, who's been hurt or killed? and you've had no emotional response. That happens sometimes, right? You hear on the radio, you hear about something happened, and you might think in your mind, oh, that's too bad, but there's nothing, nothing visceral, nothing in your heart. Why? Because you don't know them. You don't love them. It's too bad, but there's, there's no anger in you because you're not connected with them. See, love and anger are two sides of the same coin. When you deeply love someone, you are going to necessarily be angry. If you're not, then we would say, don't, don't you love them? See, that's the nature of God's wrath, that he loves his people. He loves his creation. He loves the world that he made. And what he sees in, in those who sin is that they are ruining it. They're wrecking it. They're hurting people. And so it's right and good that he is full of anger. This is the nature of his, of his righteous anger. And we see a Nahum, he kind of goes through and, and describes both the anger that he has and the power that God has. Look at verse three. It says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power. There we see how his love uh, kind of tempers his anger at first. He's patient, he's gracious, he's slow to anger. It says, the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. Now that's interesting. Because if God is gracious, then we would think, well, isn't that what grace means? That he would, you know, just kind of turn a blind eye to sin at times. That he would forgive. That he would just overlook it. 
And God's answer would be, well, well, I have. If you know the story of the Ninevites, you know that I have overlooked sin for a time. The whole book of Jonah is God being gracious both to Jonah and to the Ninevites, to warning them, and then responding when they repented. He said, okay, I'm going to relent. I'm not going to destroy you. But now they've gone back to their evil ways. And what God is saying here in the book of Nahum is, look, this is a people who conquer the people around them, who abuse and rape and pillage. And my response to them is one of anger because they are ruining the lives of all those around them. The root of God's anger is, is really his response to sin. And we see his power in the next few verses. It says, his way is in the whirlwind and storm and the clouds of the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry. He dries up all the, all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither. The bloom of Lebanon withers. Uh, the imagery here is of places in um, the Middle East that are usually fruitful and flowering. And the power of God is that he sucks all the life out of it in his anger. Verse five, the mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, the world and all who dwell in it. This is terrifying imagery of what happens when God is angry. But verse six is, is really the most focused. It says, who can stand? Who can stand before his indignation? That's a, a righteous anger. Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. See, this is, this is God's reaction, writ large. And what we need to understand is that this is the right reaction to sin. If you think back to that movie, think about what we would want to happen in that situation. The father, in his sin, not in his righteous anger, in his sin, he wants to go and find that guy and kill him. But that's not the right response. The right response is for the police. The police to go and enact justice to do their investigation, find the person who killed that girl, and they should punish him. Why? Because God put them there. The authorities on earth to make sure that justice will be served. That's God's function in the universe. That God is there to bring an answer, an ultimate answer for evil. And he does it by punishing sin. See, we like the idea of a loving God and have trouble with the idea of an, of an angry God but the truth of the matter is that they are one and the same. They have to be one and the same. You can't separate them. In fact, trying to separate them is like trying to separate um, uh, summer and winter. This time of year, we say, man, I love summer. I, I wish it was summer all year round. That's what I hear in my house a lot. Don't love summer. I wish it was warm and, and fly. I wish it was just summer the whole time. And, and the truth of the matter is it, it doesn't work that way. If it did, our side of the globe, from what I know of, you know, orbits and stuff, would just be on fire all the time. And uh, Asia and Australia, whatever's on the other side of the globe, would just be freezing cold. It, it wouldn't work. The way that the summer and winter work, they have to go together. You can't separate them out. There's glory for God both in the summer and in the winter. And there's glory for God both in his love and in his anger. That's who he is. That's who we must understand him to be if we are to truly understand him. So, we began by asking a question. If, if God is love, then why is he jealous and angry? I'm going to answer that question by rephrasing it. Because God is love, he is jealous and angry. Because he is love, he must be jealous towards those who are going astray and must be angry towards those who are full of sin. That's the answer to who he is, but 
But in terms of what it means for us, uh, it poses a big problem. Because if you're tracking with what that means, it means that he loves us as his creation, but that he's very angry towards us as people who are in sin. And so now the question becomes, okay, so how does, how does he feel about me? What's his, what's his reaction to humanity, to, to me specifically? If I'm full of sin and God is wrathful towards sin, then that must mean he's, he's angry towards me. Well, we get a bit of an answer in Nahum itself, a kind of a foreshadow of this ultimate answer that we find in the New Testament. Uh, verse 7 is, is the foreshadow. It says, the Lord is good, which is really interesting. Right? You've got all these verses about the anger and wrath of God, and then it says, verse 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. And so the, the question is, refuge from what? I mean, there's lots of days of trouble, Probably this week you had some days of trouble and the Bible talks about that, that God brings us comfort and help and, and that's very true. But there is a greater day of trouble. A day of trouble that seems more, um, seems that the rest of this first bit of Nahum was really speaking about. So if you look at verse six, again it says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? The, the image there is of someone actually standing before the wrath of God. And do you know that that, in fact, is what is going to happen? That each human being will find themselves before God, being judged for their sin. And, and what the Bible says very clearly is that each one of us in our sin, we have been storing up wrath. Look at Romans 2.5. This is jumping to the New Testament, speaking to those who are uh, believers. It says this, But because you have your hard and impenitent hearts, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Speaking to all human beings, saying, look, this is, this is the reality of having a hard heart towards God, of being in sin, that all of your actions that go against God, all of the ways that you, you turn your back on him, you are storing up wrath. Why? Because, because God has to answer sin. He has to answer the evil in the world. And so this question of, of Nahum is a question that every human being has to really wrestle with. Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? And the answer is no one can. No one can because we are justly condemned in our sin. But notice that the verse 7 gives the answer that we're hoping for, that we're longing for. God is our refuge. God is our strong tower. And the way the beautiful and miraculous way that God both affirms his hatred of sin, but also his love for us is found in Jesus. In fact, in 1 John 2, 1 and 2, we have this explained uh, beautifully. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now that uh, $1,000 word there, propitiation, is a real churchy word. It's not a word we use very often, but it's really helpful. It's a technical term. Uh, propitiation means this. It means a wrath-bearing sacrifice. We're going to put up there, wrath-bearing sacrifice. Now that's key because what it means is that it's, it's something that takes on the anger or wrath of something else. And there you'll notice it's speaking about Jesus as our propitiation. And what it means is that on the cross, 
On the cross is where Jesus took on the wrath of God, a wrath and anger that we deserve, but he took it upon himself. And he did this so that the justice of God, the angry justice of God and the love of God could be reconciled in our lives. Because on the cross, we see the the seriousness with which God takes sin. He's saying, no, I am angry. I am wrathful. There is punishment. But in his grace, he applies that not to us, but to his own son. So that's the beauty of the gospel. That's the nature of God's love for us. Not, Not just that he wants us to be devoted to him and him alone, but that he actually takes on the consequences when we are not. That wording in in verse 7, that the Lord is a, is a stronghold, that, that he is our refuge. You notice there, if you look back, it says that he knows the one who takes refuge in him. Meaning that it, it's not just for anyone who might sort of have some idea about who Jesus is. It's for those that have relationship with him. It's for those who have recognized the reality that each of us, we should be, we should be worried, concerned about our sin, and yet... When we hear of what Jesus has done, we have hope and security and peace because we come to him and we say, Jesus, I I need your help. That on my own, on my own, I am worried. On my own, I am concerned because I see that God is a God of justice. But I recognize, Jesus, that you took the wrath of God on yourself on my behalf. I confess my sin and I trust in you fully. And in that, In that, we experience the the love and the grace of God. Grace because it's undeserved. Grace because because it's God's undeserved kindness and sacrifice for us. See, the question that we asked at the beginning, who is God? If we want to make it more personal, what we might ask is this, how does God see us? What expression is on his face when he considers us? See, in light of what we've seen here in Nahum, we might think, man, there's a stern expression on his face. If you're someone who is unclear about the grace and love of God, you might think, man, he, he just demands that we do things his way. But in light of the cross, we must understand that, that his expression is one of, I mean, he's smiling. He's happy. He, he's loving towards us, even in our sin. Why? Because all of our sin has been wiped clean in Christ. And so that means that now he only relates to us through grace and mercy. That his anger is there, but it has been spent on his own son. And that means that we walk forward freely, without any burden, without any condemnation, able to worship him and glorify him as we should. So, here at the beginning of Nahum, you can already tell, this is a weighty book. Right? This is not a slap happy butterfly rainbow book. It's a book with some weighty truths about who God is. But that's a good thing for us. It's a good thing, especially if you are a person of God, if you have faith, because it means that you can better worship and glorify God for who He is and what Jesus Christ has done for us. But if you're here this morning and you're not yet a person of faith, you're just maybe interested, you just have questions, I hope also you will see the value of this that the Bible does not shy away from these big questions. It does not try to soft-pedal the character of God. God reveals himself in all of his glory, both in his anger and his love, so that we might know him more and so that we might trust him fully. So with that in mind, we're going to close in prayer. We're going to thank God for who he is. 
and then we're going to worship him more. Lord God, I do thank you. I do thank you for this text, this weighty text, one that forces us to really wrestle with these different attributes that you express. But I'm so thankful, God, that you do not leave us on our own, and you do not pretend, Lord, that, that you are not who you are. God, you are full of anger towards sin, and that's, that's a good thing for us and for the universe. It also glorifies you. It makes much of your justice and your, your holiness. But God, also you show that you are full of grace. And I pray, God, that, that in that, we would draw close to you. I pray especially, Lord, that we would, we would see any sin in our lives and, and it would weigh on our own hearts and that we would come to you for forgiveness again and again, counting on the fact that you are gracious and that you are loving. I pray, Lord, especially for those here that are, that are really wrestling with some of these big questions. God, would you help them to see truth and Lord, would you help us as a church to provide good answers and good counsel? Thank you, Lord, for this time. Thank you for your word. I pray, God, that you would continue to, to lead us closer to yourself as we work our way through Nahum. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.